Welcome back to the Plowcast. I'm Susanna Black Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. Today, Bruderhof member Timothy Keiterling and I will be speaking with David Bentley Hart. Dr. Hart is an Eastern Orthodox writer, philosopher, and scholar. Do not be the one who holds out his hand to take, but shuts it when it comes to giving. If your labor has brought you earnings, pay a ransom for your sins. Do not hesitate to give, and do not give with a bad grace, for you will discover who he is that pays you back a reward with a good grace. Do not turn your back on the needy, but share everything with your brother and call nothing your own. For if you have what is eternal in common, how much more should you have what is transient? That was a reading from the Didache, a, um, I believe it was, was it around the year 100? You're 90 or somewhere, somewhere like that? It, it is indeed an extremely early Christian treatise. We don't know the exact date. Uh, most would say first century, though, late first century. Right. So it's, I kind of wanted to start with that just because there are, so, there are lots, obviously. One of the things that Jesus talks about most frequently and that gets brought up most frequently in the New Testament documents is money. And um, as Christians, we can tend to have like little sort of mental, um, I guess, uh, moats, I would say, around each of the paracopes or each of the um, mentions of money that we get in the New Testament, where we have a kind of like little explanation about why it's not as radical as it sounds, or, you know, we have little sort of things that our brains do to kind of divert, um, divert our, ourselves from being confronted. And the thing that the Didache reading does, I think, is just to kind of, it sounds like the New Testament, but it's not the New Testament. And it is a document that kind of is a, it's instructions for Christian living. And we don't really have any defenses against it. Um, I, I'd like to welcome to the podcast, um, Dr. David Bentley Hart, whose writing has meant an enormous amount to me um, in, uh, just my own spiritual journey and uh, my own Christianity and has, I, I can think of at least two people who um, his writing has actually brought back from kind of shipwrecks of their faith. Um, I think if, if no one, if anyone who's listening doesn't know his work, I would highly recommend it. And Dr. Hart, thank you so much for being with us and um, taking the time to talk about all this stuff. Well, thanks for having me on. So you have a piece that you wrote for us for our Beyond Capitalism issue, which was back in the before times, before COVID. Um, that I remember to... those days, yes. <laughs> I vaguely remember that time. I, I was young and full of hope. I know. The world, the I world know. seemed an endless vista of possibilities. <laughs> um, yeah, that was, that was beautiful. Um, uh, but we can still cast our mind back to those times and sort of be nostalgic for them. We will link to that piece. Um, Dr. Hart has also written an enormous amount elsewhere about similar questions. What is the relationship between Christianity and money? What are the teachings of Jesus out of the early church that we guard ourselves against? How do we understand those in relationship to the apocalyptic nature of Christian teaching in general? Um, one of the things that I was reminded of um, in rereading your or reading your um, a Commonweal piece that you wrote about this was that you've often said that it was your translation of the New Testament that really opened your eyes to Jesus's radical teachings about money and how seriously the early ch church took those teachings. Can you talk about that? 
Well, I can't say that it came as a surprise. What did come as a surprise was how pervasive it was once one set aside uh, certain traditions of translation. Uh, because, um, I, and of course, uh, theological habit. I mean, you, you uh, and also familiarity. I have to say there's something about going to the text itself and becoming responsible for rendering it directly from Greek into English that makes it hard for you not to notice the sort of things that your mind otherwise uh, has gotten in the habit of skating over. Uh, you know, we, we recite the Magnificat in church regularly, uh, and yet the actual content uh, seems somehow to elude our notice, which is basically uh, the hymn of a, of a, of a revolutionary, uh, you know, uh, exalting in the overthrow of the, of the, of the mighty and the, and the wealthy, and uh, the elevation of the poor and the downcast and the forgotten. I mean, it, uh, it, uh, there are moments actually, it's not just in the New Testament. I mean, I've encountered them over the years in the church fathers. There, there are statements that if read literally, and one has to think that they were spoken literally, make, uh, make Bakunin seem like a tepid conservative by comparison. So, and, uh, yeah, I, I think, for instance, translating the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I was, I was, you know, made to realize how much of it really just consists in very practical advice for the poor, only for the poor, over against the wealthy, who, because they are wealthy, are already characterized as more or less wicked. Um, the way in which there's a figure who appears uh, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, who's just uh, the wicked man, the evil man, Oponeros, whose presence is almost effaced by, uh, by normal um, translations because uh, uh, of the two of the three times he's mentioned as Oponeros, the wicked one, uh, many of the standard translations transform that into uh, evil in the abstract. And in the other case, make it sound as if Jesus is talking about the devil. But actually, in the Greek, it's clear that that's not what's going on. He's uh, talking specifically about those who exploit the poor for profit and who use a corrupt legal system to do so and uh, is giving advice to those he's preaching to, not, 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 a, not a, a level of uh, spiritual exhortation, but very much at the level of just, uh, you know, practical community organizer sort of advice on how to deal with, with the man, you know, uh, uh, regarding staying out of debt, not getting trapped in, in, in an unjust legal system and uh, not being reduced to penury or slavery. What do you say? Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Anything more extravagant than this is something that, are, that, that comes from a rogue, from a con man, from somebody who's trying to cheat you.
So, you know, be aware that, that, you know, these grand, these, these grand and seemingly spontaneous oaths meant to give you a sense of a person's honesty and integrity and, you know, calling upon the holy city and upon the throne of God or the footstool of God. Uh, is is simply a way of of cheating you, all right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The the also so the, uh, the evil one occurs also. It says you know the, the translation we get often is resist not evil. But again, that's not what Christ is saying. You know that that that's so vague it's meaningless. Um, it can be taken in the right way, you know, it could be taken in the direction of a radical pacifism, but it could be taken in no direction at all. It could just mean, uh, you know, try to be equable of temper. What he's actually saying, though, is don't, if you look at it carefully, you know, when you're struck on the face, do not try to contend. Do not, you know, he's steaming, do not, do not contend by force. With the wicked man, and there's a reason for that. As as the sermon goes on, it's clear because the wicked man has all the power on his side. Uh, he can drag you into court. He can hand you over to the magistrate, who hands you over to the bailiff, who throws you into prison. Uh, you you have no hope of of again. You will simply fall prey to these people. And remember, also, this is why he says, you know, on the way to court. Uh, make peace with the plaintiff, the person who has a complaint against you. Well, again, we tend to read that in a very spiritual way of, as a recommendation of universal amity. But again, but if you look at the context, what he says quite explicitly is once he gets you in the courtroom, all of the way, you know, everything is rigged against you. You'll end up in jail and you'll have everything stolen from you. So if you can, settle out of court. I mean, this is ridiculously, uh, as I say, um, you know, this this is is ridiculously practical, and then of course, the uh, the Lord's Prayer, the last last half of it, uh, you know, that's very much a, a prayer for poor people. Um, there too, the evil man appears at the end. But what does it actually say, you know, the latter half of the prayer? Well, this says, give us today bread, you know, epiosion, dosi mean simeron, tonar tonimon simeron, you know, or what is it? Tonar tonimon epiosion simeron. Give us today the bread that is sufficient to maintain life for the day. And, and I mean, that term epiosion doesn't, doesn't mean simply as, you know, we eat every day. It means literally sufficient to sustain life. Keep me alive another day, O oh Lord. Um, and then, and this is really one of the great crimes of the history of translation. Do not, do not bring us to the trial. You know, para. It's talking about the the perasmos. It can mean just, but this it can mean trials and tribulations. But it clearly also means the perasmos of being questioned before a tribunal, being tried in a court, being again the, at the mercy of of corrupt judges in tandem with the wealthy men uh, whose interests they serve, and deliver us from the evil man. Again, this wicked man who swears elaborate oaths to cheat you, 
whom you cannot defeat by force, who would have you robbed of everything you own in the courts if he could. Well, when you, you know, as I say, I'm taking a long time to say this, but you suddenly, it suddenly uh, dawns on you when you're translating this from the Greek that what we've become so accustomed to reading as, as a catalog of edifying but ultimately somewhat vague spiritual counsels is nothing of the sort. It's, it, it's a condemnation of an entire social and economic system and, uh, and a series of practical counsels to the poor on their behalf over against their enemies, these, these devouring lions, that is, <laughs> there we do bring the devil into it, um, who are the wealthy and the powerful and, and the enfranchised and those who sit on the high courts. Dr. Hart, it's nice to meet you. If I'm hearing you correctly, you've, you've described the teachings of Jesus as eminently practical, especially in regard to his teaching about money. Yet, we're used to un understanding the idea of the kingdom of God or the rulership of God as something spiritual or having spiritual overtones, almost an abstract idea. My question is, how do the two relate? Um, how does Jesus's teachings about money, which, uh, as you've been describing, are eminently practical and grounded in realities in, of, of life here in the Galilee in the first century, how, do, how does that relate to the kingdom of God? Well, I, I think... Um our habit of separating spiritual from practical concerns would have been unintelligible in the first century, just as it would have been unintelligible to separate uh, a civil society from religious culture or, uh, or, or personal obligation from social obligation in the, in the context of, of Judaism or, uh, or in the days of, of Christ. Um, in fact, I always find it funny when um, when persons of a more libertarian bent within the church argue that that uh, we should separate uh, Christ's words about uh, caring for the poor from our uh, political commitments, our notions of social policy, because he was talking about private charity, which is good for the soul, not about uh, you know structures of social justice. So, of course, this is a distinction that to a first-century Jew would have been absolutely meaningless. You know, it's a, it's a, there's no such thing as that sort of sphere of private moral concern separated entirely from from uh, embo the embodied communal life of 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 people of Israel. And um, the same, I think you, you could say something similar about the notion that the, the kingdom is a spiritual reality, but it's also a, a practical and a political reality and a social reality. And though in the end it comes, uh, you know, in the twinkling of an eye, if you like, or it, it comes in God's good time, it nonetheless is the kingdom to which Christians belong, whose rules they have to follow, whose laws they have to abide by, and whose ethos they have to submit themselves to. 
So all those practical counsels and all those concerns are not simply preparatory uh, to uh, uh, the life to come and certainly not, uh, not merely matters of private prudence or discretion. They are very much what it is to be a Christian. Um, you know, if you are a very, very wealthy person who keeps your money to yourself, for yourself, and believes that uh, you have uh, done done right by by your baptisms in giving by, by giving occasionally to charity. Uh, but on the whole, the, you can live now trusting in the grace of Christ, but but not according to the form of life uh, that the kingdom uh, is. That is where where you know the widows, the orphans, the poor, the oppressed, the leper who dies at your gate are are the exalted and and uh, are children of God. Then you're deceiving yourself. You're not actually. Uh, uh, living as a Christian at all, you're you're living as a kind of para-Christian phenomenon, you know, a sort of um, uh, moral residue of a Christian vision in which you're not participating. It seems to me that one of the ways to think about this, like, you know, obviously I'm, we we're pretty influenced by Hauerwas over here, and although I think there are limitations in in thinking about the idea of living as resident aliens, I do think that, like, not as a way of privatizing faith, but as a way of kind of like taking appropriate rule over our own lives, it seems to me that what you're describing is that we ought to be using political economy, we ought to be living in political economies that would, that are like appropriate to, that, that match the actual political economy of the kingdom of God, so that we'll become the people who will like recognize and enjoy that. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think that actually also means not acknowledging uh, the borders, because of course you're, you're, the the kingdom is a cosmic kingdom, and therefore it claims everything. So, um, I, to my mind, it doesn't mean creating a separate and privileged sphere in which one acts out a kind of communal life that nonetheless is embedded in the political and economic structures of the larger society uh, and and is is sort of preserved in a kind of organic homeostasis, <laughs> you know, uh, against the entropy of the surrounding landscape by, by a kind of controlled flow. Of, of energy that instead it, it doesn't involve um, it does most definitely involve real political and social action that one has to enter in to the best of one time and recognizing of course the limitations and recognizing also that that obliges you um, not to to approach the world beyond your faith in the manner of a conqueror or or an empire, but as as one who comes bearing a witness to something. Um, I do I do worry about sometimes. I mean, I, I love Stanley, and uh, so sometimes the uh, the uh, and and, uh, and yes, living as sojourners or aliens. That's obviously. Uh, right there in 
the New Testament. But, uh, you, you know, suffering outside the gate uh, is, is one thing. Um, not using what opportunities, what powers you have to come to the aid of those in need, if that involves uh, uh, systems that aren't internal to the faith, uh, is you know moral dereliction as well. If you let it, if you let it go too far. So that this actually relates to the piece that you wrote for our Beyond Capitalism issue. You you basically describe you know, small semi-monastic communities like the Bruderhof are good, but they're not enough. That as Christians, we should be seeking a broader political economy yeah. that does reflect the anarcho-communism of the kingdom in some way. You also said in that piece, you didn't at the moment have any ideas about how to do that. So True. <laughs> any True. further I thoughts? Mean, I, I, mean, I, I mean, you know, uh, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I saying that this is what I think the moral imperative is, is very different from saying I, I know what that entails in practical action. I mean, there are times when you're like you're moved. You can't help but but uh, move, you know, to, towards certain kinds of prudent accommodation at times, for instance, you know. Uh, if your conscience dictates it, I'm no no great fan of either of our political parties, you know, and I think they're both, uh, you know, they, they both belong to a, a military industrial <laughs> complex, and they both, you know, they practice uh, um, any number of injustices. But, you know, I, I think, for instance, the uh, the prospect of the re-election of Donald Trump was sufficiently hideous that it was morally defensible to vote Democrat last time. I would never say I would prescribe that for everyone, but I, I certainly did, even though I'm no great fan of, of the Democratic Party uh, either. Um, and so sometimes, you know, to my mind, this does mean making uh, prudent ch choices with regard to what's possible in the moment. The problem with that, of course, is it, be it can become such a fixed habit the, the, that uh, you think that prudent accommodations are all you should you should worry about, and, and there are times when obviously you have to be imprudent and impractical too, and and uh, and strive on the side even of what at present is is practically impossible uh so so i don't really know i mean obviously if i could conjure into existence a a, a totally just social order <laughs> from which poverty had been eliminated and we mostly spent our our, our time uh, looking after one another and playing baseball and and uh, and reading good literature, I, I would do that. But um, I, I think that on the whole, it's uh, it's 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 you have to start by trying to cultivate in yourself the right um, how can I put it the right obstinacy, uh, the refusal the refusal of the right things to refuse. And then the rest really is a matter of of uh, of 
of trying to discern practicality in the light of conscience. Just a little housekeeping. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. We'll be back with the rest of our conversation with David Bentley Hart after the break. What's your read of the parable of the unjust steward? The guy who writes off everyone's debts. Well, first of all, it's always funny when you're dealing with the Gospel of Luke because you always feel that the social agenda there is front and center. I don't know if, if I wouldn't even call him the unjust servant. I would say that you remember that adikia can also just mean outside the law. So the, uh, the let's say the law bending steward. Uh, that I think Luke takes a, a certain delight in him uh, reducing the debts to his master and therefore depriving his rich master of some of his ill-gotten gain. But also, I mean, they're, they're, you know, it's, it's a funny parable too, because of course, it's also translated well, so, you know, that you may have everlasting habitations. I think there, aeonios just means for life, and it just means that, that in this lifetime, because you've made friends. I'll take care you, of you you'll take care of you. So what I see that parable as is, is just a very subversive little parable is this is the mammon of, of, of injustice to begin with. Um, you know, don't hesitate to use it for, for better ends. You know, uh, you, you can, <laughs> you can establish a community with those debtors that you, you let off the hook and they can look after you. It, I just see it as being sort of magnificently irresponsible. It's a lack of, uh, you know, a, a wonderful irreverence towards the, uh, the economic and social system that was, was in place. But it's it's a, it's a wonderfully mysterious parable, though, too. You know, I, uh, why? What do you make of it? <laughs> I thought that it might have something to do with the kind of like how are we supposed to live in the world, um, like essentially using the, the resources that we have access to in slightly finagly ways to create community, where because the community that we create is more important. I think that's a perfectly valid way of interpreting it. Uh, I, I, you know, I, you know, it's not as if uh, the figure of Jesus in the New Testament is an idealist committed to values higher than himself. I mean, this is one of the peculiar things about him as a moral figure. One of the reasons he sort of stands apart in human history, and people found him even in his own time you know, or in the centuries, the early centuries of, of the Christian movement, strange and hard to interpret, is that he's, that, that he's always depicted as speaking with an authority that goes beyond the authority of mere uh, moral intelligence. He's not telling you things based on his commitment to high ideals. <laughs> he's giving, you know, he's, he's giving you commands based on his power to command and excuse, and to determine and to determine the the, the boundaries of the behavior that that uh, that he chooses to allow or to forbid. Yeah, and he's also presenting himself and his kingdom like as this kind of package deal where this is the new this is the new most valuable thing. It's like as though the economy were suddenly flooded with gold. It just it throws everything economically into disarray because all the kind of like 
pros and cons and like sensible investments that you might make in the face of this overwhelmingly valuable thing become like, this is the only sensible investment. Well, in America, in which not only Protestant culture, but a good deal of, of, of Christian culture at large has somehow gotten it in, into its mind that or the virtues of the good businessman and the virtues of, of, of Christ have some uh, affinity with one another, that parable does sort of stand out as a rebuke that says, no, actually, he was subversive not only in preferring the poor, but also subversive of the very structures of the society that, that, that uh, uh, oppressed them. Yeah. But he's not, I mean, it's not that he's imprudent. It's that there's a new reality. There's like a new actual kingdom that's a real kingdom and that he is really the king of. And there's a new, and the value of that is so huge that you would definitely be a, a dummy kind of and a bad investor to not throw all your money into it by giving it to the poor. It also works by a radically different set of moral priorities. I mean, it just does. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, is why Jesus can quote uh, the law and the prophets in a way while, while at the same time, obviously, giving such a radically different spin on what he's quoting that, that, that it, it doesn't annul it, but it just moves it all into a framework of radical transvaluation. My husband is a biblical theologian. He talks about the basically like the Jesus fulfilling the law as in like, it's not just that you don't murder, it's that you do the thing that murder is the opposite of such, uh, you love your brother. After hearing your fascinating explanation of the parable of the, the steward outside the law, I like that. Um, how would you, how would you, what's your take on passages like Luke 14, 33 that seem to proclaim a pretty radical attitude towards not just money, but possessions as you've rendered it. So therefore no one of you who does not bid farewell to all his own possessions can be my disciple. I guess I have two, I guess I have two specific questions. Your rendering does not bid farewell. Is that, is that is that more one's attitude or is that actually giving up possessions? Well, it would be a pretty lousy uh, attitude, actually, if it didn't involve any giving up. Right. But then my second question would be, is that a call to a specific group or is there something more? Are we all somehow, are we all somehow called to this, to this attitude or to this giving up? It, it is hard to say you know, if you in a scholarly sense, because, um, the word disciples, mathetes, you know, is um, does generally literally mean the people who are learning at his feet as their rabboni or rabbi. But then again, if he's told, if you're told to make disciples of all peoples, does that mean find disciples among all peoples or make everybody a disciple? You know, it's it's very hard to say. Um, you know, I mean, it, it uh, and also you have to understand, you know, when we talk about the crema, the um, possessions a person has, quite often that word's going to mean uh, vested wealth, you know, what, what you hold back to yourself. It doesn't mean that you're not allowed to say, oh, those are my sandals. Uh, 
<laughs> you know? Sure, sure. It's a, yeah, could, could you please not carry those off? The road is rocky. Um, you know, it, does, it doesn't mean that one is, is meant simply necessary to walk around naked. But, but yeah, I mean, I, it, it's hard to say. It, it, I think it, all these things have some uh, application to all Christians in the sense that there is an ethos there about being described what of what makes it possible faithfully to to follow Christ at the same time you know in the context I cannot say with absolute certainty that that verse isn't isn't meant specifically to talk about those who had committed themselves to him right to the end in that moment when he was on the way to the cross we kind of been talking about like money and possessions as though they were the same kind of thing but the the idea of about not serving god and mammon that does as i understand it, at least relate specifically to money as a commodity and also to the spiritual being the spiritual power and one of the refreshing things about you is that you're just a thoroughgoing supernaturalist what how do we relate things like money that we can use as a commodity to like actual demons or actual <laughs> I don't know, like the actual spiritual spiritual agencies. Yeah, yeah, spiritual agents. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that's uh, the, the implication of that is that uh, that uh, I mean, on the one hand, you have the the, the practical statement that philargeria, you know, the love of of silver, um, it leads to unhappiness and woe. But then you also definitely have this invocation of of the uh, of of a god of wealth uh, that you can't serve alongside uh god and um you know everything is spiritual warfare uh, surely i mean certainly it was for the early christians they they believed that in its currently uh, imperfectly reconciled state the cosmos is the habitation of all sorts of spiritual powers striving to uh, create their own spheres of power, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think that you, you, you have to assume that, that that's meant fairly literally. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a first century, this is a first century text. So, yeah. You had kind of described the falling away from the more, the first generation, um, approach of Acts 2 and 4 communism and of basically a full commitment of all your resources um, to the kingdom as basically the kingdom took a long time to arrive and meanwhile we have families to raise. So how do we, how do we understand where we are now and how do we make sense of things like the book of Proverbs and it's kind of more you know, it can have advice about money that kind of sounds like your your grandpa is giving it to you or like your money-wise uncle Joe or something. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, that kind of thing. How do we – do those proverbs still apply to us? Well, I mean, they, they do still fit within the sphere of natural virtues. I mean, the, uh, the, the, the laws of the kingdom are not, are not premised upon something called natural law. And that's why natural law reasoning is so impotent, actually, to to indicate anything other than 
than the most minimal conditions for understanding the flourishing of human beings. You know, people who make arguments from natural law are making bad arguments as a rule, at least when they try to extract imperatives from it. Um, uh, so, I mean, you know, the, 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 there's nothing to condemn in those who honestly undertake the pursuit of those natural virtues, surely. Um, but it, it doesn't, you know, they, they don't, it's not the same thing as the kind of radical commitments of, of the kingdom. And the truth is, is uh, as cynical as that sounded when I said it, I mean, I, I meant it, the, the kingdom, uh, the, you know, the, the early Christians were able to live in a kind of interlude within time, a kind of interregnum or, or a time of exception outside of history because they honestly believed that history was coming to an end. And it didn't. Certainly, it was not possible. It was never going to be the case that Christianity was going to function as a cultural logic at large within the context of its time, right? The question is, could it could it actually be a um, be a cultural logic at large in any context, any historical context? Could there be such a thing as an economy based on gifts rather than debt? You know, on the circulation of the gift rather than than the. Uh, uh, the, 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 the retention of the debts uh, of others, because so much of, of, of the history of, of human civilization has been just this, ways of using debt to create flows of, of wealth, property, and, and social power. And uh, I think a, an economy of the gift is a real possibility that we limit ourselves when we think that, when we say it's unimaginable. Um, and that therefore it is still worth actually undertaking this or, or believing in it as a real political, social, historical project, not just as something that that will one day arrive, uh, and until then, you know, you've, 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 you know, your kids want a swimming pool, and uh, you know, and there's nothing wrong. I mean, again, the, these are natural virtues. It's, um, it's, you know, it's, it's healthy to want to provide for your children and provide for their education and and give them good things without necessarily. Um, making them moral idiots by giving them more than 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 uh, you should. But again, uh, what can you, you know? Practically speaking, uh, the lesson, at least of the dialectic of early Christian history, is that Christianity as a, as a project, as a living social economic vision of reality has always been to some very large degree a failure. And so then you have to think, well, is a partial failure a complete failure? No, it's not. It also created forms of justice, forms of community, forms of moral intuition that, that have survived and that do 
that can still bear fruit and that can still be nourished and brought back to life. Um, but again, in in any in any given context, you 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 are, I'm afraid, going to have to rely to some degree on prudence practiced in light of conscience. And it, it, we know what the excesses are, right? I mean, we know that that uh, you're just sort of gorging yourself on on material wealth and ignoring the poor is evil. <laughs> Does that mean that? Uh, you know, um, Christians are prohibited from getting a, a, a car, uh, or let's not say car because of course that brings up environmental issues. Um, buying a house with more space for the kids, you know, and there, if one plays the absolutist, I think that that one is is uh, being just as bad as the worst of the Pharisees. You know, at some point you have to say, well, <laughs> pray about it. <laughs> You know, and there just is. We just don't have a, a a rule book full of strict instructions on every contingency that life throws up. And the early church, in a sense, didn't even think it needed one because they were, you know, it's like provide for my grandchildren. I mean, you know, the kingdom is coming next week. Jesus will provide for my grandchildren. You know. Returning again to your comments about how like really doing the translation of the New Testament sort of opened your mind more fully to the impact of those passages. What else in what else are we not getting? Like what else did you run into in that process of translation? Well I don't see the thing is, was it a surprise or was it it's surprising to me how much I was making myself not pay attention to things I knew because I had a pretty good education about this and I knew late antiquity quite well. I mean, I had a good classical education and late antiquity was always sort of one of my special fascinations. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, I don't know, you called me a supernaturalist. What I am is someone who acknowledges the, the supernatural uh, uh, cosmos of the early church and who has no prejudices against it based on modern uh, modern notions of what is and is not rational. Um, and the simple fact is I, I do think that that, um, that I, I was confronted, first of all, again, by, by the plurality of early Christian. I mean, it is simply that you cannot make all the, the texts of the New Testament conform totally to a single uniform understanding of who Christ was or what you just can't I mean you can pretend that you that, that, that it's all sort of um, seamlessly dogmatically uniform but in fact it wasn't instead what you have are the testimonies of those who've been seized by this experience putting it into words and using concepts available to them to express something that clearly goes beyond what they could ex express what you don't have you don't have a Nicene Trinitarian theology or a Chalcedonian Christology in the New Testament, but what you have is an impetus towards uh, a fuller articulation of of something that's been revealed, and uh, that I think you know to some degree not not in a complete or absolute way, but to the degree that was possible is actually expressed in the in those early creeds. 
but when you realize that the, how plural the early Christian world was and how much of our understanding of the early church is based on what we want it to have been, and generally that means trying to make it conform to a certain picture of what we think it should have been, you know, sort of the Hollywood picture in which uh, uh, Judaism and 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 the Roman world are are set against one another. Judaism is sort of a uniform internal rabbinic tradition already, and everyone has an American accent. <laughs> while the Romans all are all played by British actors, and that's how you know they're sinister. That's not real. Uh, that's true. That is true. You would be shocked how many films that the, the the Jews are the Americans, and the Romans are British. I mean, it's just it happens quite a lot. Jesus of Nazareth. You know, no, that's not true. Come to think of it, they were all British, British. But the point I'm making is that the actual Judaism of the time uh, and the of, and the actual early Christianity of the time and the actual paganism of the time are nothing like what our, our simple pictures of them are. And I think the great task of the future for Christian thought should be, I don't think it will be, but it should be trying to recover what actually, trying to remember properly what actually happened in those early centuries, because if nothing else, it's very hard to maintain sectarian bigotries in the present and antagonisms if you have a proper sense of just how genuinely diverse, diffuse, and gloriously indecisive a lot of the early, early Christian world was. Well, with that, um, I think we should probably wrap up. Dr. Hart, thank you so much. Goodbye, and uh, thanks for having me. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Go to plow.com to learn more. On our next episode, we'll be speaking with Freddie DeBoer about his books, How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement and The Cult of Smart. <laughs>